This is an ABC podcast. Those images were actually able to create laws, and I thought that's exactly what I wanted to do, to visualize this world that we live in and be curious and ask questions and try to make work that would span a time, kind of a legacy of my own life. Now, a doyen of the American art world, Catherine Opie once described herself as a social documentary photographer, only twisted. Over the past three decades, this photographer's tightly composed studio portraits of queer and trans subjects, not to mention her soul-bearing self-portraits and her uninhabited landscapes, have moved in the popular imagination from the fringes to the norm. But there was a time when Catherine Opie didn't want to make activist work, and you might be surprised to find out why. This is The Art Show with me, Daniel Browning, coming to you today from Gadigal Country. But I don't think the mob here will mind if I say Jingiwala anyway. That's Bunjalung for hello. We'll also meet a musician who's hired to play gigs in response to artworks. You're just really responding just completely in the moment and I love the idea that it's, it's completely ephemeral. Open your eyes and your ears with me on this episode of The Art Show. Once thought to affect only promiscuous homosexual males, AIDS is now spreading in epidemic proportions to other segments of the population. President Reagan came to Philadelphia planning to address the AIDS epidemic. He was still at the airport when he was asked what school children should be taught about AIDS. Abstinence has been lacking in much of the education. One of the things that's been wrong with too much of our education is that no kind of values of right and wrong are being taught. The administration has not put its money behind its rhetoric in fighting this AIDS epidemic. Back when Catherine Opie started practicing photography, every second queer artist was an AIDS activist. As the death toll kept rising, the moral outrage, the homophobia and the second guessing that paralysed governments also incubated the disease. The real enemy was apathy, entrenched homophobia, silence and invisibility. Now one of America's leading photographers, Catherine made her name in the aftermath of the crisis with radical, empowered images of genderqueerness and sexual diversity. Robert Maplethorpe's hardcore images of fetish subculture predate Opie's, but hers captured individual lives and communities at a turning point in history, when the culture wars were in full swing. Her portraits of sometimes recurring subjects like Pigpen capture their transition and their becoming over time in a style that's almost documentary. Her best known photo is, for me, a bit like a coin. It's not a single photo, but a double self-portrait where she exposes herself in more ways than one. Now, in the first image from 1993, Catherine Opie has her back to us. Apart from the brocade pattern of the dark green backdrop, there's nothing to focus on except a childlike drawing cut into her skin. A chimneyed house with a ribbon of smoke, fluffy clouds, birds, and a lesbian couple living happily ever after. While the companion work, taken the following year, shows Opie looking straight at you, the viewer. Completely hooded, though, in a leather gimp mask with her breasts exposed. Her fleshy arms are pierced with hypodermic needles from wrist to shoulder. And in an arc above her breasts, in fancy writing, the word pervert is etched into her bleeding skin. In one fell swoop, she reclaimed the word for herself, neutralised and re-weaponised it against the homophobes and the sexually conservative. Since then, Opie's gone on to explore everything from the fragile state of masculinity through college football players, Florida Swampland and Trump's America to the spirituality of surfing. She's now Professor of Photography at UCLA. And the first survey of her work in Australia is on at the Heidi Museum in Outer Melbourne. And I spoke to her from her studio in Los Angeles. Hi, Catherine. Welcome to The Art Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the name of this exhibition is Binding Ties. How have your portraits bound you to certain people, your subjects? Because they're longitudinal photo sessions, could we call them that, where you go back yeah. and photograph the same people, Pigpen, for instance, uh, at different yes. stages of their lives. What element does time then to play in your work? I mean, this lapse of time. 
Well, I think, I mean, photography is about time. And I think that because it's a, it's a medium in which it's about representation, that you can actually see over time somebody like Pigpen. In the Heidi Museum, there is the portrait of Pigpen on red with the tattoos of the pumpkins on the knees. And then Pigpen is obviously in the film, The Modernist, and also represented in the oval of kissing uh, Julie. And, you, you know, one of the things that's really wonderful about friends and friendships and making work is if your friends like you, they keep agreeing to sit for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really happy about that. But that the other thing is, is that representation of long friendships and just in terms of the queer body and the space and the elements of that that I'm looking at, it's, it gets to be combined in, in a very interesting way. Your entry into portraiture, I guess, was almost a bearing witness to a community that had been ignored or, or, or marginalised, discriminated against. What was it like taking those early photos of your friends and your peers? Um, what prompted that? Was it just, was it access? Yeah, it felt radical at the time, but also not radical because I was making such formal portraits. So when you think about other photography that was going on, or even even the formality of, of Robert Maplethorpe or Peter Hujar, but then you think of contemporary photographers such as Nan Golden, I really wanted to take the idea of portraiture and photography and begin to look at it also through a lens of historic painting. So using somebody like Hans Holbein to end up having my queer friends be my royal family, so to speak. So I wanted to use like the power of, of what images can do in aesthetics to be able to hold a viewer to a body and also for viewers to realize that there is such beauty in diversity and uh, also really on a political framework to be able to create representations of my own community that would would hold the meaning of what it meant to be ignored by our own government and to be going through, you know, an AIDS epidemic. Now, I think you've said at first you were very resistant to making queer work in inverted commas. Why? So I really thought I wouldn't get a teaching job and I really like to teach. And so I went ahead and got my master's degree, not necessarily to make my work better, although it did result in that, um, you know, extended degree doing that. But I really got my master's degree so that I could be part of a larger teaching community in, in the U.S., and um, I thought by making that work and making the early self-portraits that I was going to basically lock myself out of academia. And, you know, I always say this to young artists, it's just like make what you really believe in and what's really important to you because life is short, especially at that point in time in my life, I felt life was short watching friends in their 20s and 30s die. And it just seemed too important not to go ahead and make that work, even though I thought that I was potentially harming myself later on through employment, which turned out to be obviously false. I'm 25 years at UCLA and I'm the chair of the art department. So <laughs> <laughs> it all worked out. <laughs> Forgive me, it doesn't sound very radical of Catherine Opie to kind of be worried about being shut out of academia for the, the subjects of her, of her portraits. Well, really want to teach and you really want to be a part of that discourse and especially you'll do anything yeah you you know well yeah you, you wouldn't you know you wouldn't you would still make the work that you're you want to make but you would worry about it and so i was worried about it I, I do i do i do understand that sentiment actually what power do you think those portraits and i'm talking about you know i think the first portrait of pig pen is 1995 uh -huh. and, and photographs of the community I mean, it's hard to kind of ask you this question, but I'm going to try. Do you think they had any kind of impact in bolstering the community? I think it did. I think for young people to recognize when they walk into a museum, such as what's going to happen in, in your own, you know, in Australia, is that all of a sudden those who are young and not feeling like they're, they have any kind of models or they're not being recognized all of a sudden be faced with images 
that is uh, that are inclusive. And we're all looking for inclusivity to a certain extent, you know, and homophobia is so pervasive. I mean, we have 420 new laws against transsexuals on the of uh, trying to get on the books here in the United States. And I know that homophobia is alive and well in Australia as as well. What what we do is, you know, as artists, and I'm I'm an I'm an activist and an artist, uh, is make sure that there is work that people can recognize themselves in, and that's really beautiful because I don't think that it was like I didn't think that I was a radical artist actually when I was making these. I thought the self portraits were a little daring, you know. <laughs> I thought those might be radical in my, back of my head, but it was I wasn't about a radicality. It was actually about like a very specific positioning and relationship to blood and homophobia of what was happening at that time in the 80s and 90s. And that's the, the radicality is bearing witness, is to decide to go ahead and make work that um, will speak to others. And I like the idea that potentially somebody who might be homophobic will walk in and begin to fall in love with just looking. And maybe that's one way of actually just helping, you know? And then on the other side of it, I'm going on too long, but is the fact that now at almost 62 years old, I have these, you know, kids come up to me and say, I was like nine years old when I saw your Guggenheim show. And it made me feel that I could be okay with the rest of my life. And those are the moments that you just hold so close to your heart, you know? It's profound. It's profound when you see the kind of, I don't want to even use the word diversity, but you see the kind of, you see yourself reflected. You find yeah. yourself in those images and you, they're being elevated. I mean, in the use of those kind of almost historical backdrops and, and creating the aesthetics of, of, a, of, of you know, a, a Holbein portrait of a king or a queen. Queen, yeah. You are elevating that soul to a higher place than the one that they exist in every day. And that's, that is, that's powerful. That is really powerful. Uh, and what I love about your subjects, and we're talk, just talking about the portrait photography here, is how they stake a claim to their space in the world, their, their place in the world. And I see these images as part of a wider movement. You mentioned Nan Golden, Robert Maplethorpe and others. Um, but images like yours end the shame and the invisibility that was and is toxic. That's what I was trying to do. I mean, I think that one of the ways for me as somebody who's wanted to so badly be a documentary photographer, and that's very different than being a photojournalist, but that idea of like, what does it mean to make work in the time that I'm living in? And what are the questions that I'm trying to answer through the work? And, um, you know, with with photographing people in their homes as they're just hanging out, you know, in, in a way that like you can think about uh, Wolfgang Tillman or, or Nan or that different, those that work, there wasn't a formality that I wanted for my friends. Like I wanted them really to feel like very regal within themselves and that they have the right to take up space. Now, I want to ask you about the compelling photographs, a self-portrait, cutting and pervert. Now, I know everyone asks you questions about them, <laughs> but you made them in the early 90s and they became talked about after they were shown at the Whitney. What was your experience of, of putting this private life out in public? It was hard. I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it wasn't hard. I made Pervert, and then when I had the meeting with uh, with Klaus Curtis, who curated the 95 Biennial that year for the Whitney, um, and he said that he wanted to include it in the Whitney Biennial, um, that work had never been shown anywhere else. So the first place that Pervert gets shown is the 1995 Whitney Biennial. And then I have to go home and I have to tell my parents. So they knew I was a lesbian. <laughs> they didn't know that I was... I had a part of a letter. <laughs> oh my God! This, oh my God! The second, the second coming out. <laughs> so I had to have this whole second coming out in 1994 
95, you know, where I brought a eight, you know, 11 by 14 print, definitely not the 30 by 40 that's in the museum right now to say, Hey, mom, dad, I made this. It's going to hang in a museum. I thought I should talk to you about my life a little bit. <laughs> but I think the hardest thing was not going to my parents. The hardest thing for me was being so surprised of people's assumptions of me being some kind of hardcore, badass person that wasn't approachable. So my humor and my ability to navigate, you know, in a public place and kind of who I am as a core, as a person and my humanity, I felt um, didn't come through in that specific image because it was a really, it was an image that was a challenging image challenging the times that we you're, were you're faceless in. you're faceless yeah and i'm faceless i've got a leather hood over my head i've got a lot of needles in my heart <laughs> uh, and so you know i did that image in san francisco in a studio with 15 of my nearest and dearest uh with me to complete it and do the shoot in one night it was kind of a party not i won't call it a performance because it was made for an image but there was like 15 close friends in San Francisco as, as I was making it. So to take it out of that kind of beautiful care and commitment from my community to then put it in a public arena, I'm not sure that I was quite mentally prepared for that. Now, the obverse of pervert is, you know, on, the, on, the, on your back, we see yeah. this kind of childlike drawing of, of, of two, you know, Two, two, two lesbians, I guess, and, and, yeah, and a house. I figure girls with skirts, yeah. Even though I've never worn a skirt, it's there. I thought, how do I, how do I do like, do I do two butches? Then it's two men. I mean, the only thing that connotes women in child drawings is the bad triangle skirt, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're looking good in the bad, in the bad triangle skirt. And there's a house in the background. There's, I think there's a clouds. So there's also this sense of like, of longing in that image, not just, you know, you're, you're outing yourself as a pervert uh, for everything that that means. And I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from as a fellow per pervert. But that, that longing in that image, uh, the obverse is, is also, it's also staking, it's also taking a risk. Yeah, I find that one the easier image and the one that is more aligned to my personality than pervert actually. Um, I'm, and then, you know, this is, it's 2023 now. So that image is 30 years old. It's been around for three decades since I've made it. And it is, it is about longing. It is about what we're taught as children to also draw that represents family. And the fact that the sun is coming out of the clouds, you know, is really important to me because can we turn a page in a certain way in which that if I, chose to have a family, which I obviously did after I made that image. I had Oliver, which is self-portrait nursing in the exhibition as well for the full circle. But yeah, that was, you know, that, that was really important to add to that conversation. But the longing is because it was after a breakup, after my first domestic breakup, I kept drawing that on legal pads. You, you might remember back in 1993, we still sat at desks that had phone courts. I do remember. <laughs> For the audience might not remember that. Yeah, thermal fax machines yeah. and all that kind of doodle. And so I kept doodling that image over and over and over again. And then finally I said, I need to make a piece of this and I want it to be a cutting. So um, that's how it came about was after, you know, out of that longing and feeling like for a year of just being like, am I ever going to have my family that I so badly long for? Well, um, the portrait of you with with your son uh, nursing him is a kind of is is, is a, a kind of a denouement to the to the pervert yeah, image. And also, perverts healed at that point. You just see the scar. We can see the scar yeah. on your breast, but you're instead nursing nursing Oliver. Um, yeah. Very very you know happy little baby, beautiful blonde, and you're looking down at him. Um, so this is the son you had with your wife, Julie, and you had Oliver at 40. Yes, I did it at 40 because I finally got a full-time teaching job at Yale with health insurance. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I'm going to have a baby now. 
And then as I was trying to get pregnant, I met Julie. And so she moved in to the house in LA when he was three months old. And after she finished teaching painting at Wash U in St. Louis. So it was like, definitely, I, you know, and it, and it's so interesting because Julie and I have now separated for a year and a half and, and then are divorcing and Oliver's 21. And so it's just, there's just yet another chapter, you know, and so interesting because I woke up, you know, I'm babbling now, but I woke up at 1.30 thinking about queer family. Like, what's the relationship of queer family and divorce? Like, we haven't talked about that yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing with gay marriage is like, well, there's also got a gay, there's gay divorce, right? He got married, you got divorced. So, <laughs> uh, and all my all my straight friends are going, yeah, it doesn't feel so good, does it? <laughs> And, and that lapse of time that I talked about earlier is, is, is so present in those, when you look at those two images side by side, you know, pervert and then you're, you're nursing. Yeah, that's almost, I think about a decade apart, actually. And, and just that lapse of time and then also a complete, I don't know, around this time, I think you're also depicting uh, lesbian couples in their domestic lives. You were interested in. I was right after self-portrait cutting on my back. I started making portraits of women together in their homes. And then after I made the portraits, they would break up. And this happened three times in a row. <laughs> long couples. Because I was also trying to find my longing of domesticity by doing domestic. And also having a conversation with Tina Barney and aspects about family and photography that were really popular in the 90s that Peter Galassi was curating at MoMA and um, wanted to be a part of that conversation. Uh, and then I put it aside because three couples in a row broke up and I said, oh, my God, it's the kiss of death work, you know. <laughs> Don't pose for Catherine. You'll end up in you'll end up in divorce court. I know. Exactly. And so I put it aside and then I picked it back up when I bought an RV and decided to do it as an American portrait. So just going across America for three and a half months in an RV, meeting women in different towns and cities and carrying on with it that way with an 8x10 camera. Now, I don't want to misrepresent your career at all, and, but you're known for uh, both portrait and landscape photography. But often your landscapes are devoid of people. I want to ask why that is, because is it never the twain shall meet? Or it does seem odd to make so much work with humans in the studio who are the centre, the focus, but then banish them in, the, in their natural environment. I love the word banish because that's how high school football players came about and uh, surfer portraits, which aren't in the show, but there were portraits all of a sudden that I started making when I was making the surfer images because somebody had pointed out to me uh, in, a, in a recent lecture I'd given that I only photograph queer people and everybody else is banished, just like the word you, you used. And I was oh, like, no, don't align me with don't align me with them. <laughs> I was like, I tried to do that. Oh, interesting. so then I made a correction. So when it comes to representing your own history, when did you I know there's a story when you first uh, received a camera, you were inspired by someone who was photographing, I think, in the early 20th century. Yeah, Lewis Hine. Uh, he was actually the first photographer to be able to change the laws in the United States through the photographs he did of children working in factories. And so all of that, those images were actually able to create laws. And I thought when I wrote a report about that in school, that that's exactly what I wanted to do that I wanted to visualize this world that we live in and be curious and ask questions and try to make work that would span a time that would be able to create a, a kind of a legacy of my own life in the time that I was living in. I'm sure I didn't have that complicated thought at nine, but I asked my parents for a camera and they gave it to me. And then I proceeded to do exactly that. Like I built my own dark room by the time I was 14 and then went to art school back to, you know, and I've just never put down that language. It's, it's actually, it's, it's my language to articulate my ideas with. 
your mum, your mom, um, she she placed some importance on on the family album, on photographs, on photographic memory. Oh well, she was a huge documenter. I mean, I had so I I just recently got all the eight millimeter childhood films um, put on digital, as well as photographs. And then I I'm now the holder of the family archive of all of her family photographs. And so I recently pulled out this album that my great-great-grandfather made. And we were looking at it with friends. And I was like, I was just said, do you think that I'm reincarnated? Like, this is crazy. Like, horizon lines and everything. Like, all the landscapes looked like I had made them. It was really an odd experience. So I've grown up with an enormous amount of ideas around documentation. And also my father had the largest political campaign collection in, in American history that is all housed in the Smithsonian. So I grew up with a, with the representation of American politics through campaign slogans and buttons and all of that ephemera around me for my whole entire childhood. And so those two things made me realize, as well as being born in 1961, with magazines having a huge impact in in the house on the on the you know living room table. Now your photos are very beautiful. They're also very direct, but they reference other periods of art and aesthetic styles, as we talked about Holbein earlier. How do you want people to read them? Do do they need to come with a wall text or I, I love the scarcity of, inform of information about certain subjects and I have to reconstruct, I have to imagine why Catherine Opie is presenting this person to me in this way. Yeah, that's good. And what do you come up with? <laughs> oh, it, 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 always, it always varies. And then I'm surprised when I read a little bit more, the background, but I'm, I'm, I like not being told precisely. I don't really want to tell everything. I, I feel that you know, work it out. You know, and I teach my students this too. It's like the work will deliver what it delivers. There might be one person who wants to go deeper. There might be another person that's just okay walking through and just looking. And that it should operate on both levels. That hopefully you can go really, really deep into something and understand it through a historical context, both either an art historical or you know, a cultural history, but like what is history and how do we build it and how do we, you know, look at it? And it's always a structure for me. And it is, it, it, it does start with different questions like high school football. One wouldn't think that I would want to go and photograph, you know, young men playing football. Um, but I actually felt that they were as vulnerable as my queer friends in the 90s because those kids were going off to war in Iraq and Afghanistan if they didn't have money to go to college or football scholarships. They were already being trained to be warriors. So what is it within that kind of cast that we might think of as being the bullies of, of us queers? But can't we also have empathy and look at their own vulnerability? Like that, the notion and the vulnerability of humanity has to come through all the aspects of the body of work in my mind. And it, and it does. I, I think of that, that series, the, you know, the high school footballers, as this is where that thing, that, that, uh, that scourge um, is kind of defined. I'm talking about the scourge of, of masculinity, this kind of social construction of masculinity around the very rigid kind of criteria and I, I just was instantly empathetic I thought these are these guys are at the crux they're in the frying pan if you know what I mean not only are they going to be going off to war some of them but they're also yeah they're they're on they're on this kind of battleground that negotiation of, of masculinity and femininity whatever those things are uh, yeah, affect us all in some way and, you know, one of the things, Daniel, in the placing of that work is in that room is Oliver in a tutu. And then I think that on the opposite side of the wall might be Pigpen, if I remember correctly, in my mind. So I wanted, like, the idea that Oliver's wearing a USC t-shirt, which is a very powerful college football uh, entity here in Los Angeles. 
and but he's wearing a tiara with the pink tutu. And I love the contradiction of that, right? The same way that there's a contradiction of vulnerability in that those young bodies of those those young men. Mm. What I love about the images, and when, when I see this, I'm instantly drawn to it when you were talking about the longitudinal studies, if, if I could call them that, um, where you track the kind of progress of a body, or, of a queer body over time, is, this, is the process of becoming. And becoming is so important. As a queer man myself, I know what, this, what it means to become. It's not just a coming out, it's a becoming. Uh, where you either disappoint or or rewrite the definitions of, of what it is that you're meant to be. So that becoming is really, really important. And when I see it in the photos, I'm instantly drawn to the story, the narrative of becoming. Does, does becoming mean anything to you? Yeah, I think, I think becoming is interesting. I mean, it would be, the, you know, like with the title being and having of the, of my friends with fake mustaches on, that is another kind of becoming where the queer body is, becoming through its own um, marks that is placed on the body. What is the becoming of a young man in masculinity is supposed to be kind of um, a certain normalized thing, like you're supposed to be this way, kind of. But you see within their bodies that it, they, they, there is like a, an awkwardness to it, that not everybody is like hyper masculine who's a football player. Some of them have really long arms that feel like they're reaching down to their knees and they look like they could be plowed over on the field. And I really love all of that as being a part of landscape because body and landscape are definitely threaded that I look at. I look at the body as a landscape and vice versa. Wow. There's, there's, there's the clincher. Because I, I was, I was going to ask you how these, how are they related? How are they connected in your mind? Well, that's how they're connected in my mind. That my the mark, mark markations on my body are in the same way a river might all of a sudden go through the landscape. Those marks mean something, you know. It's interesting because I have a house in Three Rivers at the foot of the Sequoia National Forest. I have a pretty you know, a river that either is dry or runs. And then this winter with the, the, all the incredible atmospheric rivers, 31 of them that hit the state of California, my river moved for the first time in 17 years. And it's, it's, I look at the landscape like that. It's, it's as if I added a new tattoo on my body, you know, and I, I love that those are markers of our history. And that's also how we understand the history of earth is through through the marks within the landscape that that tell us these different moments and different ages that that have happened in in the formation of this planet of ours. Hey, how did you develop your palette? Because your colorization is so warm and and rich. And uh, where does where does the inspiration for the for those for that kind of palette um, come from? A, a colored seamless that is available to you know. I mean, I'm not painting i'm not painting out of psych like some some photographers would actually create their own colors and paint a psych but i was you know i was shooting four by five and that alone was expensive enough for myself uh, so it depended on the nine foot seamlesses but i didn't want the color to look like photographic ad colors so it's all about the lighting so it's then coming down to like, well, how are you going to light this so the color feels like it pops? You don't ever feel that um, the background is a background. You feel like it's a field of color. And that was really important to me because there's a lot of ways that you could photograph where it would feel like a background, but I wanted it to be a field of color and that's all through lighting um, and the way that also the, how far the subject stands um, outside of the background and using depth of field in that way. Now, there's a reason why you use uh, an 8x10 camera and you shoot in 35mm. Those formats capture something or create a possibility, I think, um, that has a lot to do with the, the history of photography and your reclamation of it. Why, why is it so important to, to use the, 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 talk about format for me. Well, I use every single format available um, 
And I'm very fluid as a technician. I'm not fluid in Photoshop or things like that. We're talking fluid as I was a darkroom printer. Like I, I know the medium in that way, hand developing all my large format film and trays. Like I'm that person. And every single time that you use a format, there has to be kind of a relationship to it for me embedded within the history of photography. So when I shot with an 810, I was definitely thinking about Gregory Crutzen and Sally Mann and Tina Barney. You know, I was like, okay, this is how these kinds of photographs are done. And this is the language of it right now. So all offense is incorporating that history and, and, and imbuing it or embedding it with that through what I choose or how I choose to print or mount or do an exhibition. You mentioned Lewis Hine as being an inspiration, but you, I think you also love um, a documentary photographer who I um, revere, and that's Eugene Aché, the, the French. Oh, well, yeah, Aché. I mean, there's so much American cities is Aché, and thank you, Bernice Abbott, for bringing Aché out Oh, yes, Bernice to, Abbott has to be acknowledged, no, yes. I have to acknowledge Bernice in that one, because that was a woman who was uh, finding a male photographer who was putting it forth to us. And, no, Aché, Saunders, all of that kind of taxonomy, all, I mean, that history, I, yeah, I wrap myself up in it, and Always the interesting thing for me when I started photography, I always thought, well, the image is going to be more interesting a hundred years from now, because that's what I was looking at. I was like, wow, look at this. This was a hundred years ago. Uh, but when things happen so immediately in, in our, in our world and globally, such as 9-11, it's amazing how a photograph can become historical all of a sudden the next day as of whatever events. And I don't think that I ever thought about photography in that way until that started happening, like photographing Elizabeth Taylor's home and then three months into it, having her pass, that things do pass and things do disappear. And those, those moments are so much a part of how we hold history and think about um, the idea of, 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 of being human in this world. You talked about rhetorical landscapes and other series. When Trump was elected, um, I think which you described as a travesty, what did you, did you feel, was there, was there a deeper sense of, I now have a, have a responsibility that perhaps I had let go of, or a social responsibility to document the excesses of, of, of his presidency or to, to kind of stake a claim for humanity. You went on that road trip, but you know, did you feel a deeper sense of responsibility to, to the country, to, to your fellow Americans? Yeah, I, I think I did, especially with a body of work that's not a, I mean, you have monument, monumental out of the body of work 2020, which is home with the landscape you know, that are, are abstracted and you have, you know, in that piece, you'll notice that you have, uh, uh, it's bookended by a setting sun, but what you don't realize it, unless you're looking really carefully and you think about what it means to frame is the sun isn't actually gone down in the sky. I've just moved the camera. And so it appears as if the sun is setting on racism in America, but it certainly has it. And so there's a play with just how you begin to frame or articulate an image that I was working with, with that very clear, you know, taken over um, activist site by Black Lives Matter at Richmond, Virginia on the Robert E. Lee Monument. And so... Yeah, that drive was really important. When I started going to Black Lives Matter um, marches during the pandemic and, and bearing witness to that in L.A., um, and at the simultaneously, I had to figure out how to get my son to college because they were actually going to be in person, even though UCLA was canceled and every other school was canceled, not Tulane University in Louisiana, uh-uh. And so I, I looked at Julie and I just said, well, I think I'm going to buy an RV and I think it's time for another RV trip. There, let's drive him to school in an RV and then let's take off together so I can document what's happening in the U.S. right now, because that would be the safest way to travel. We didn't we were not on planes. We were I didn't want to stay in a car in which I had to check in and out of hotels. 
And so the RV became, again, just like in domestic, the source of me to traverse the country and begin to talk about kind of what has happened to these different American cities under Trump administration as we were going through another cycle of election where he really could have won again, you know? Well, yeah, I do feel a responsibility. I, I'm, I'm, I like to be a good citizen. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, just, I just think that there's, there's that strong urge in you, within you to be that documentary photographer. And, you know, you could become, you could be just a photojournalist. You could document daily events and, and you know, things that become, things that are newsworthy. Um, obviously, your eyes much more attuned to a deeper kind of longer term meaning. And I think with the Robert E. Lee, with Monument Monumental, um, you know that the, the 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 statue of Robert E. Lee since removed from Richmond, Virginia, yeah, it's it just gone. completely plastered and graffitied over. But the graffiti is what captures my imagination. It is like this is a statement. This is this is almost as a, it's almost as if it's a. These are better than ballots at an election. What what they've written there, on that monument, is a clear indication of what needs to be done. Yeah. Because the people who are most affected by Confederate statues are black people and the descendants yeah. of enslaved people. We have and the world has to listen. Yeah, I went to a reading, uh, Robin Cost Lewis, uh, one of my favorite L.A. poets, uh, did a really amazing book looking at family photographs. But one of the most profound things that she said on stage Tuesday night was, you know, what are you going to tell me that my history is 400 years old? You know, and meanwhile, Julie Meritu, who's from Ethiopia, can have all of this history. But my history starts with American slavery. You're going to tell me that as as a African American woman that that's my history, and so it was really profound what she was saying, and and actually thinking about the work that is coming out of the U.S. specifically in relationship to Black artists is is a profound moment, and I'm really glad that there's that there's this conversation happening. Mm. Extends so much further than, than than slavery. I think it's just it was such a, a catastrophe on so many levels, such a such a tragedy and a crime. Oh, that we can't. We we're, we're living in a shadow, but you know, I think it's often Black Americans who are like, oh yeah, you know, just you know, you know, there's other things, you know, like there's the deep connection with Africa and a visual culture in, in Africa and yeah. then beyond. We're running out of time, but I, what do you? It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. What do you tell? <laughs> what do you tell your students at UCLA about this idea of bearing witness? Do you encourage them uh, to think that their art can change things, even if it's just minds? Or you, what do you tell them <laughs> to inspire well, like, them? Well, like, if they're working in that way, Daniel. I mean, if they're working in that way, then I push them and I show them a lot of things. But I tend to teach from where my students come to me at in relationship to their ideas with their work. And I can guide them and I can mentor them, but I certainly don't try to change their ideas. I just grow on them as artists. So if I have somebody just making purely formal abstract photographs, then I talk about purely formal abstract ideas with it, even though that might not be the place that I'm the most interested in. Um, do I, you know, it, it's been interesting to have a photography change in the U.S. again, back to a place of bearing witness with people like Latoya Ruby Frazier and Daiwood Bay, who's worked forever. And there is a, there is a return to, we have to be vigilant. being out in the world again and, and making images of the world. And I'm really happy that that's happening again because through the late 90s and, and early 2000s with the embrace of abstract photography um, as materiality. I mean, yeah, it was interesting, but did it drive what I love about image? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, can I ask you just one last question? And that is... Yeah, of course. The exhibition's called Binding Ties, but I was interested... And I think I didn't ask this clearly enough at the outset, but I'm asking it now. What are the ties that bind you when you look at all this work? 
What, what is, is, is it the, the ties to Oliver? Is it the ties to, to Pigpen, one of your recurring subjects? What are the ties that bind you? Binding ties is, for me, just hopefully longevity and curiosity and that people will continue to, I've been, feel so fortunate as an artist that, you know, I have a global presence in which people follow along and binding ties for me is, is just about binding myself to my ideas and my hope to leave behind in, 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 you know, an incredible history of things that were important for me to think about during my life. And you can see the survey of Catherine Opie's career at Melbourne's Heidi Museum of Art. It's called Binding Ties, and it's on until July the 9th. This is The Art Show. You're with me, Daniel Browning. Perhaps talking about a photograph is a bit easier than describing the details of an expressionist sculpture, or a work of installation, or a symbolist painting for that matter. Believe me, we know how hard that act of translation can be here on The Art Show. So could music be a better language to interpret art? Rosie Westbrook is a musician who's been hired by galleries and even artists themselves to play music in response to artworks as she sees them. And she's our guest this week on My Thing. My name is Rosie Westbrook and my thing is improvising to art. I started doing this in about 2009 because I had been writing soundtracks for documentary films about artists and one of the films was about the Australian artist John Catapan and John invited me to his studio to come and look at some of the work and and he's also a big music fan and you know, we just got along really well and he invited me to come back with my guitar and just sit there and, and play. It always involves creating music that sort of works with the particular artist's work. So I did that with John and then he invited me to play at an exhibition of his and I just keep doing this in various museums and galleries to beautiful exhibitions of, you know, pretty much all Australian artists. I usually sort of trot out somewhere midweek and, you know, at a quiet time of the week and take my guitar and just sit in front of a painting and just play, just let it, and don't overthink it, just, just play. Sometimes I might be more influenced by the painting almost as a graphic score where, like, if it has stripes or lots of dots or lots of patterns then I'll, I will think oh patterns will be good here and but I try to not think too much about it it's very much just an instant reaction in the 20th century composers would write graphic scores to illustrate a sound that they wanted a musician to do that it couldn't be illustrated by any traditional classical notation or or expression. Um, or there might be, you know in a cartoon when you see splat or arg or, or almost like that, but then some people's graphic scores themselves are actual works of art, will be beautiful patterns or something like a mandala. So it's it's almost halfway between a visual and a musical medium. I was a, an artist in residence at the Australian Tapestry Workshop and they were weaving a tapestry from a design by the Australian artist Janet Lawrence called Hear the Plant Song, which is this beautiful giant work, you know, all greens and just drops of water and and I had to think, oh, how is that going to sound? How, what will a drop of water sound like? And I created a very, it's, it's very ethereal and very gentle sounding track, but I think it works really well with the tapestry. Mm -hmm. 
I started as a classical guitarist. I studied classical guitar, which you know was my first instrument for many years, but I'd also played the double bass at school because I was tall. They said, you, play the double bass. And then I ended up studying the bass after I'd completed my guitar studies and I was very fortunate just to have the most wonderful teachers, including an American bassist called Bertram Turetsky. And he invited me to go to California to UCSD and study with him. And so I went there for basically a year of immersion in double bass and all of his students lived in the same area. And it was, you know, it was probably the best, most sensible decision I ever made. Then I ended up starting to play in bands, playing bass guitar, and no one knew I even played the classical guitar. I was very, I was very shy. I don't know why. I just thought, oh, that's not really cool. I won't tell them. With the double bass, people started inviting me to come in and bow, you know, play with the bow on their recordings. Um, the great Australian producer engineer Tony Cohen, who sadly passed away. He would invite me in to play on a band's recording and he would always, like, they'd get me to do a few takes and he would always say, give me a wild track now and I would just get to play whatever and that was just the best thing. At some point I discovered that I could also create music because when you grow up classical, you think of Bach and Beethoven and you go, oh, I can't do that then I ended up starting to write music and and that brought me to now you're just you're just re really responding just completely in the moment and you know I'm often asked oh well you, you'll be recording this and I go no because it, if it's in a public gallery you'd be amazed at just how loud the general public are just just footsteps even are really loud and I love the idea that it's, it's completely ephemeral. That may not be very fashionable in the modern world where everything's recorded and everyone films everything. I love the fact that it's, it's just there and then it's gone. Rosie Westbrook, the music you heard is from Rosie's album, Always the Sea. And Rosie's next performance is at painter John Catapan's exhibition at the Dominic Mersch Gallery in Sydney on May the 20th. Daniel Browning here, you're on The Art Show. I'm in the landscape and the landscape is within me. Then there is an interchangeability of sensibility to what you do to the landscape and what it does to you. Polluters take note. The late John Olson from ABC Archives. The 95-year-old artist died last week, a celebrated figure in the Western landscape tradition in this country. You can find links on the Art Show program page. There are tributes to him on the ABC Listen app and on ABC Arts, advice he might have given to younger artists. That's it for this episode of The Art Show. Our producer is Rosa Ellen. Don't forget to follow us on the ABC Listen app, but if you are listening on a third-party platform like Apple, why not leave us a review? What do you reckon? One, two, three, four, maybe five stars? I'm Daniel Browning. I look forward to your company next time here on The Art Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.